I'm looking forward to jumping right in. Let's go to John chapter 17 as you, we are going to see these themes. In this really magnificent prayer, powerful prayer of Christ, as he now has finished his final discourse with his followers, with his disciples, we've spent a lot of time working through that. We began in the upper room, the Last Supper as it's called, then right before Jesus talks about abiding in him as the vine, he says, let us go from here, or from what we can tell. Uh, it seems that Jesus and his disciples have been walking, probably the back streets, um, out toward the gate of the city, and they're just to, as uh, Jesus finishes up his teaching and begins this prayer, it seems they're getting ready to leave the city to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. Many wonderful truths that Jesus has been imparting to them that are vital for them to remember as he gets ready to give up his life. They have, in one sense, really no idea what they're in for. And the teachings that Jesus has given to them will help keep them through what they're about to experience. But he ends his discourse with them now with a prayer. It's known as the high priestly prayer. Don't confuse it with the prayer in Gethsemane. Uh, we will find out at the end of this prayer that they still need to walk to the garden. And that agonizing prayer will be later. But uh, Jesus prayed with his disciples on a regular basis. And it seems in the midst of this teaching that at some point he stops, probably at a quiet place there. And he prays, first of all, for himself and then for his followers in this prayer. And finally, those who will come after them. And he's praying all of this in the presence of his disciples as they get ready to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And at this point, his earthly public ministry is over. And we're going to see that as he prays to the Father, he speaks in terms that he has accomplished all that was required of him from the Father. And he will very soon finish his work in his sacrifice on the cross very soon. And so Jesus could speak of the Father's mission as accomplished. And tonight we'll see in these first 10 verses in chapter 17, we'll see, I have accomplished the work. Jesus states this clearly as he prays. Verse 1 of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, this, that's this teaching discourse to his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. 
and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Father, magnificent truths as we come before you now in this short prayer. We marvel at these words of Christ as he prays and in no uncertain terms makes it clear that he is the son of God, that you are his father and you are in a unique relationship that in the things that he describes here can only be described of God. He makes it clear that he is God. And yet, he also is doing, as he accomplished the work that you sent him to do, he is accomplishing that in his followers today, as he accomplished it with these. May we be encouraged tonight. May we be encouraged to further meditate on the relationship between the Father and the Son, and also be encouraged that the work that you're doing in us is the work done through Christ. And therefore, we will be successful in it because it is not our own effort, but it is the power of Jesus working through us. We can say and we can acknowledge that Jesus has accomplished the work and that we can accomplish the work you've set before us before Jesus returns. Help us to be confident in this. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as Jesus begins this prayer, It's going to make it clear that he glorified his father in his earthly ministry. He will glorify his father, not only in his earthly ministry that has been taken place so far, but he is about to with his sacrifice as well. And so again, back to verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is the words of the teaching of the discourse that he was giving to these followers. Remember, now it's 11, 11 disciples. Judas is already off getting ready to portray the Savior, and Jesus is speaking to the eleven, and he lifts his attention to the Father, his eyes toward heaven in prayer, and begins this high priestly prayer. It's referred to that many times, as that many times, because it's one of request and intercession for his followers. Jesus is requesting something for himself, but then also asking the Father for um, work and for um, keeping with his followers as well. He's interceding for them as a priest. And so uh, there's much beauty involved in this. And he admits, he is clear, Father, the hour has come. It's not, it's almost here, but it has come. That hour is the time for the son to offer up himself. And in that very awful, bloody act, that we are about ready to delve into here in a few weeks. Here is remarkable that Jesus will bring, uh, it will bring even greater glory to himself. Father, the hour has come. It is here. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. It's amazing that very event that we look on as Almost even followers of Jesus as a tragedy. And the, the very innocent lamb of God who had to die 
and be tortured and go through all this. And we, we, we were thankful for that, and we should be. But our hearts also mourn as we, we're going to get ready to read that passage. And it's, it's a dark passage in many ways as we read all that Christ went through. And yet, folks, we cannot forget that that act, that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross would bring him great glory, probably even greater glory than his earthly ministry. As amazing as that is, that awful, awful scene, Jesus being nailed to a cross would bring the Son incredibly great glory. He would be glorified in front of all because he would be accomplishing forgiveness of sins, atonement for mankind, that all those that would put their faith and trust in him would look to him for salvation and deliverance from sin and death. They would experience the, as we saw this morning, the eternal glory of God and eternal life. And as awful as it is, it's also the most glorious thing, folks, that we could think of. And Jesus now says, glorify your son. Glorify me in this act of my offering myself up for the sins of the world. But it's not so that Jesus can have all the honor for himself. Again, in this amazing relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus says, I want glory so that I can give the glory to you. Always the Son's um, desire is that the Father may be glorified. And he says that the Son may glorify you. And what we're going to see as well in just a few verses It says Jesus is not just talking about the glory that he will receive when he is crucified on a cross and he offers himself up for the sins of the world, but he's looking ahead to the day where he will ascend and be back with his father and experience again the glories in the worship of heaven. And Jesus says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be back with you. But he knows the means by which he would experience that full glory, those full heavenly glories again, had to come through the cross. And Jesus says, come, do it. Be, or, or, let, let's, let's do this that you have called me to do, this final act that will bring ultimate glory to me and to you as my Father. And in this, he is also giving himself a description of glory that only goes to God. And he's clear that he deserves the glory that is only, um, that is only appropriate to offer to God. But he continues in verse two, and Jesus continues to use in the strongest terms, uses terms that identify him as a deity, as deity, really in this whole gospel. Who's the only one that can have authority over all flesh? Well, it's God. And Jesus requests this, since you have given him authority over all flesh. I'm, not, I'm sorry, he hasn't requested it. God has given him authority over all flesh, over all creation, over all of mankind. And what is this authority? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is only authority that God can have. And Jesus says, you have given me this authority. 
And again, folks, directly making it clear that he is the son of God and that he deserves to have the authority that only God has. Very clear about who he is. The fact that he, as the son of God, is God as well. Jesus is saying that he has sovereign authority to give eternal life to those given to him by the Father. And we're going to see, as we continue here, a very clear theme of God's sovereignty in salvation, that he gives to the Son those who will have eternal life. Look at that again, verse 2. It says, you have already given me authority over all flesh, that sovereign authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The Father chooses and gives eternal life to those that he gives to the Son. And even as our mind boggles by this, it ought to mar- we ought to marvel in this relationship between the Father and the Son here and realize that Jesus is talking in terms of himself also having that sovereign lordship over mankind, God giving eternal life um, to those that he has given to the Son. So then Jesus, verse 3, continues on and describes further what this eternal life is. It's interesting. We don't normally think of eternal life in this way. But Jesus equates eternal life with the knowledge of the Father. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is not here referring to just a mere knowledge, um, a head knowledge, so to speak. Um, One who has memorized a lot of Bible verses and can maybe even teach a Sunday school class or or teach others because they know a lot of Bible. That in and of itself is not the path to eternal life. But he is referring to eternal life as those that have a very special, intimate knowledge, a deep, personal relationship knowledge of God, of the Father. And those who have trusted through faith in Christ that have that knowledge of the only true God, they have eternal life. It can be described in that way. I have, what is eternal life? It is a deep personal knowledge of our creator, of our God, that can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says there, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus was the Messiah that came. He was the son of God that was sent by God on a mission. And knowing him is having eternal life. The two are equal. And so he describes it in these terms here. Those whom the father gives to the son are in a real knowing relationship with the father through knowing the son. Um, This uh, language of relationship is many times used in the Old Testament for a relationship between uh, a husband and wife. That intimate knowledge and that personal knowledge that only two people can share. And this is that same um, idea of that deep, close knowledge 
that we can have of God through a relationship with his son, described as eternal life. And if you think about it, eternal life is enjoying the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit forever. It's a wonderful picture of eternal life. And so Jesus gives that here. Um, And, you know, it's almost as you read this, it's almost reminiscent of the relationship language of the Trinity. It's, it's described in such terms here. Now, it is different. I'm not saying that, in, in, that Jesus is describing our relationship in the exact same terms as the relationship that he has with the Father. In one sense, that's unique, obviously. There's a relationship in the Godhead that we'll never be able to understand. And I don't, certainly don't want to go off and have you misunderstand uh, my instruction and in thinking on this to be like some of these cults. I think the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons that say that people can be gods. That's not what at all what I'm trying to say here. But it is remarkable, folks, that the language of the closeness of relationship that the Father has with the Son, that is still Jesus uses that here to describe the relationship that we can have with them, with God himself. And we ought to marvel in that. And realize this, what this does is the more I meditated on this, it makes me realize I haven't arrived yet in my relationship with God. I still have a lot uh, more drawing closer to him in my own life. When I think of the relationship described in this way, and I think one day when Jesus returns and I'm in heaven, and I'm able to perfectly understand the closeness of this relationship. What an incredible experience that will be. We ought to marvel in this, that we can have this close of a relationship with God himself through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He will glorify the Father with his sacrifice. He is about ready to do that. Um, But verse 4, he did glorify his father with his earthly ministry. And now he goes in further describing his accomplished work. I glorified you, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus sums up his whole earthly ministry in this statement that he gave us. He fully glorified and honored his Father in all of his words and actions. He did it. He did all that God had asked him, had expected of him. And Jesus, in doing this, in accomplishing this can say fully and truly mission accomplished. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying mission accomplished. I have done what you've called me to do. And we will see in the verses six through 10 in just a few minutes that he did that specifically with his followers. Even as he faces his atoning sacrifice on the cross, that can also in a sense be lumped into this and described as accomplished. Jesus is basically saying what I'm about to do and what I have done, that sacrifice, that crucifixion on the cross, that atoning work, it's as good as done. It's accomplished. He praises to the Father that the Father will be honored now as he gets ready. 
for that as he was in his earthly ministry. And verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he's requesting the Father to glorify him with glory and praise of, of the glory and praise of heaven that he gave up to come to earth. And Jesus is referring in this verse to his ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And this is the glory that he's describing, that he's looking forward to, that we find described in passages like Isaiah 6. Let's just turn there just briefly. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Jesus did, although he is God, he did give up the glories of heaven and the praise and honor of heaven. And he is now looking forward to the point where he will receive that again as he goes to meet his father again. And what is that glory? We have many pictures of it in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 5 is one picture. This is the glory that Jesus referred is referring to that he gave up and then he will soon experience again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. I'm reading, I'm reading from the King James here just because I love um, the translation in with this passage, just obviously one that I'm very familiar with. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And what was the response of Isaiah? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Why? Mine eyes have seen the king. And I think he's referring here to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Lord of hosts. That is the glory that Jesus gave up to minister to us on this earth. And he is saying now that he is ready to return to this glory. But he knows at the same time as he's saying this, but it has to go through the path, the way of the cross. Jesus knows that he will have to go through a torturous, bloody death in order to regain this glory. And he's saying, I'm ready. I want to to receive glory that I may give it back to you, my heavenly father. And so that is his prayer for himself. And then he jumps into a more of a detailed explanation of how, what the work was that he accomplished with his followers. But before we get into that, just as I've had time to meditate on this, you know, when we do think of Christ, and, and I hope, as we've been reminded today, that we do see the need to meditate frequently on all that Jesus has done for us. And all the riches we saw this morning, the glorious riches of a relationship with Jesus Christ, I hope we're ready to meditate on that more often. But when we do meditate on Jesus and on God, many times it's with thankfulness for what he's done for us and for his love for us and all these things. And that, that's good. We should think about those things. But the very things here that Jesus focuses on in his prayer prayer to his heavenly father don't tend to be on our top 10 list. 
Do we tend to meditate honestly, regularly on the relationship between the Father and the Son and the inner workings of the Trinity? It's hard because it's hard to understand as Jesus even describes these things. And then to describe the relationship and the closeness that we have as his followers through faith in Christ in some way capturing a little bit of the essence of that relationship. We don't tend to meditate on that very often. And even in my own life, I've thought, you know, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't. Jesus is reminding me, is reminding us here that these are things that are worthy to think about. The relationship of the Trinity, of the Father, the unique relationship of the Son, of Jesus as the Son of God, the very authority and power and sovereign control of God. Jesus has these things, and he is God, and these are worthy to be meditated on, even as Jesus made them a high priority in his prayer to his Father before his death. So he prayed these things that he would be glorified and that ultimately his father would be glorified. And then Jesus manifested his father to his earthly followers. In these next few verses, we're going to see this is the work he accomplished. He gave his followers the father's words. He is the very word of God, right? We saw that in the very beginning of this book. And Jesus will now say, I gave my followers your words your teachings. I did everything you asked me to do. Let's look at verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Mission accomplished. He's now praying for his followers, and he's saying, I made known, I manifested, I made known to these followers and I proclaimed, all in that word manifested, your name. And remember, that idea of, of the name of someone, of God's name, is referring to who he is, his essential nature. And Jesus is saying, I proclaimed and made known, made you known to these that are following me. And um, he describes further his work as a sovereign creator. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The sovereign, God is a sovereign creator who gave his son, the, the followers, out of the people of the world. And because they were the fathers, they were able to keep his word. That picture, again, description of God's sovereignty in this, that God's people, his, the followers of Jesus, are the fathers and the Father sovereignly, sovereignly gave them to the Son. And they were then able to keep the word of Jesus that he had given to them. That is a sovereign work of God that enables us because he chose us. We are his. But isn't it interesting, at the same time we talk about the sovereignty of God, the other side of this they're described in terms of their own actions in keeping and knowing and receiving and believing. Their responsibility is made clear at the end of verse 6. These, these people have kept your word. 
This is described in terms of something that they were responsible to do, and they fulfilled that responsibility in the midst of a description of God's sovereignty in giving these men, these followers, to the Son. Jesus accomplished everything that he needed to, that God had called him to do. Remember um, in our series, um, um, how we received God's word, that we talked about two men, Westcott and Hort, who came up with a, uh, with a more modern uh, Greek um, translation um, that it was the basis for most of the modern translations that we have today. And these men were vilified in many respects. Uh, and yet, one of the things that people don't realize is that Westcott, in particular, wrote, wrote a wonderful devotional commentary upon the Gospel of John. And he describes this whole aspect of the sovereignty of God versus uh, men's responsibility as John is relating this to us. And I think it's helpful here. I found it very helpful. He said, it is only, it is only the influence of the Father that men can come to Christ. Yet the critical act itself admits of being described from many sides. The Father is said to draw men, and Christ also draws them. That sovereign control that Jesus says that he has, showing his deity. Christ chooses men, and men freely obey his call. And both sides of this are in this description as we read this together, and I thought that was a good way of describing that. Well, let me ask you this. We're going to, as we continue here in these last few verses, Jesus is going to describe the spiritual accomplishments of a group of people. And he describes them as they. They have kept your word. And we're going to see here what else they have done in just a minute. Who is the they that Jesus is referring to? Pam? The disciples. The 11 disciples the ones that have faithfully remained with him. And this is key because um, there was two main points that I want to emphasize. And the first was our need to more often meditate upon the relationship that we have with God and the relationship between the father and son. But this is a second point that really stood out to me. And it still is remarkable. The description of these men and their spiritual cal um, caliber is remarkable. Look what Jesus says about them. They have kept your word. Look at verse 7. They know that everything that you have given me is from you. Continue verse 8. I have given them the words that you gave me. Again, mission, these terms of mission accomplished. They have received them and have come to know in truth. They have believed that you sent me. And then finally, in verse, the end of verse 10, he says, I am glorified in them. I receive glory in their actions. These are these 11 disciples. Wouldn't you have expected maybe a description as glowing as this? Possibly at the end of these men's lives, maybe? After the events of the book of Acts? Maybe then, in our minds, we would think they would be worthy of such glowing terms from the Savior. Do you realize that Jesus is describing these men as they are now at this very moment? You think about what we know about these men, these 11. They tend to be dull, spiritually dull. 
they tend to be argumentative. Remember, they like to argue about who's going to be the greatest, right? They tend to be uncaring. Remember with the children, get away from the Savior. He doesn't have time for you. Jesus says, let them come. They tend to lack faith. Now, Peter can give testimony. Sometimes they just say foolish things. And folks, very soon, as Jesus has just given testimony, they all will abandon him. In, in the earthly sense, his greatest hour of need. How can Jesus describe these men in such glowing terms, terms that we would love to be described for, for our relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe even comparable to that one, those words we one day hope to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It seems like Jesus has kind of preempted that in describing these men now in this way. Can it be possible? Does is, is he, is he really know them? Well, of course he does. How can he describe them in, in these glowing terms? Well, let's look at these different descriptions again. They've still acted commendably in comparison to those around them. Let's look at that first description at the end of verse 6. They have kept the Father's word. Notice that singular. Jesus has talked about the words, the teachings that he has given them. But here he says, your word. And this probably better to look at the whole, the, encapsulate the whole gospel message as a whole. And what he's saying here is they've continued in the um, illumination and the wisdom that Jesus has given them in the gospel way that Jesus has led them, they have continued to follow him. That we can say is true about them. In that sense, they have kept the Father's word because they're still with him. And then this next description, now they know everything that you have given me is from you. And they just recently gave testimony of that, did they not? They said, ah, now you speak clearly. And we know that you are giving us the things from the Father. What are they saying? That they, um, they believe that Jesus was sent on a divine mission from God. And that in his teaching and what he had told them and his actions, he was fulfilling the very mission of the Father. They were speaking in as close a terms of Jesus' deity as they knew how, really. And it says, furthermore, they received Jesus' words, for I have given them the words that you gave me. The word gave them the words, and they didn't reject them. They have received them and have embraced them. Remember Peter's um, his response to Jesus after all of those other disciples had left, uh, dozens of disciples, and these men were left, and Peter said, where else will we go? You have the ways, you have the way of life, you have the words of life, excuse me. They believed and accepted Jesus' words, the word that he gave them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. <clears throat> they are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one. They believed that, sent from God, and they believed in his identity as Messiah. And then he says at the end of verse 8, they have believed, they have put their faith and trust that you sent me. And finally, at the end of verse 10, I am glorified in them 
And even though these men are very imperfect in their actions and broken, and they have much growth still to accomplish and to experience, Jesus is still honored and glorified in these imperfect but sincere, true responses toward him. You see, Jesus looks at things a lot differently than we tend to a lot of times. And because they had fulfilled this faithfully, God had sovereignly enabled them to be able to do this, but at the same time, they're described here as their responsibility. They had accomplished these things. And Jesus, here we have this glorious truth that he prays for them. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Certainly, Jesus prays in a general sense for the world to know him, to follow after him. But he doesn't pray for the protection and for the good, um, for good things and blessings to come upon a world that has rejected him. But he does pray in a very personal way for his followers, for those that have decided to continue to follow him and faithfully commit themselves to him. He prays for them because ultimately they belong to his father. They're his father's possessions. Um, If you've probably had um, parents, some possessions that you keep specifically, um, that are specifically important to you and things that have great meaning to you, knickknacks or mementos, or maybe um, it's a specific um, object that is very important to you and you tell your kids, be careful not to touch that. Be careful with that. Show respect toward that because it's very valuable to me. Folks, do you realize as followers of Jesus Christ, we are very valuable to Jesus because we are the fathers? Remember that. Don't forget that. And Jesus will pray for us and he'll show care and love for us. And verse 10, again, in terms of relationship, that really is just mind-boggling. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in their weak faith, their imperfect, faithful service. I am still honored and glorified in them. That's remarkable. Because we are the possessions of the Father, we are also possessed of the Son. And we're able to bring glory to him. And isn't that our great priority as followers of Jesus Christ? Haven't we learned that recently? That it is our priority to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ and to our Father? Folks, we do that through our faith and dependence on him. As I finish up here, one of the things that I really want to make clear, if I haven't already, I think sometimes when we look at how Jesus assesses our service toward him. We all hope that one day when Jesus returns and we see him face to face, that we will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, don't we? We all hope to hear that. But I think if we're honest, a lot of times we think, "Ah, but I got a lot more growth to do before I'll ever have a chance of hearing those words. And yet, what does Jesus say about his followers? Very imperfect men. And yet, they had given up all to follow him. 
they didn't have a full understanding as they would. They were not being used yet in a powerful way that they would in the book of Acts. And yet Jesus says, they bring me glory. They have kept my word. He refers to them in glowing terms. Folks, our service may seem paltry to us, but understand something. It is precious to God. Our service is precious to our Savior. It may seem meaningless. It may seem meager to us. But be encouraged. As Jesus talks about the the faithfulness of his followers, as imperfect as it was, that he speaks of us as well in our imperfectness. And yet, um, our faith and dependence upon him still honors him. And one day we will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we may be surprised at the words of Jesus towards us when we see him one day. So two things. Folks, we need to in our lives have more reflection on the deity of Christ and on the relationship of the Father and the Son. It's good for us to think on those, on those concepts. And remember that we experience in some form or fashion that same type of close relationship in relationship with our Father and with the Son. And also remember this, that Jesus accomplished his work in us. We can say he, had, he said mission accomplished in our lives with his saving work. So our meager efforts are empowered and they're valued by Jesus. Jesus values our work and our faith and our love for him as imperfect as it is. And he acknowledges it and knows it. And we can look forward to one day seeing him face to face in perfect union with God in a way that's described here. And we look forward to that day. So be encouraged that Jesus thinks more highly of your service than you tend to, than we tend to. And he will faithfully, because of the work he's accomplished, he will bring our lives and the work in us to a final conclusion that will honor him. You can count on that. You can be confident in that. Lord, thank you. Deep, beautiful truths tonight. And I hope that I have in some way or another been able to fully explain the way that I wanted to. So often we think, that we have fallen so short in our faithful, in our, in our service, in our ability to honor you, to serve you well. And Lord, it is so encouraging to read the words of Jesus that these men kept your word and they believed and received them and they did glorify him even though their service was not perfect. Let us, be, let us be overwhelmed and marveled to reflect on the relationship that you have with the Son and marvel that we in some form or fashion share in that love that you have for each other because of our relationship with Christ and that Jesus is satisfied because it's a work that he accomplished in us and will continue to accomplish until we're made perfect one day when Jesus returns. And so we can look forward and trust that our Savior is, he has a positive 
outlook toward us as your servants. Lord, let us be um, motivated to serve you better because of this understanding and recognition. And look forward to Jesus' return and to hear those words one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because of the work that he's doing in us, we can be confident it will be accomplished. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.